Gateway, good day to you. Happy Sunday, all of that stuff. If you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Job chapter 9. Yes, you heard me right, Job chapter 9. You see, we really are in the gospel according to Mark, and we will get there specifically to chapter 6 today. But Mark is this genius literary writer who is saturated in the Hebrew Bible. And that comes through in his writings. And he uh, takes us through his stories, drawing upon the language and history and imagination of the Hebrew Bible. And so it makes sense for us to go along the grain of his writing rather than fight against it with our own modern conceptions. And so that is where we're starting is in Job chapter 9. You can find your way there. It's in the first three quarters of your Bible. Uh, If you are new to the Bible, table of contents is always a great tool. Um, And if you're new to us today, if you're checking this out for the first time, like I mentioned, we're in a larger series in the gospel according to Mark. Uh, We're in the first of three movements in the gospel according to Mark, and specifically the first movement, a movement which aims to answer this one central question of who is Jesus? And now this first movement, it covers roughly chapters one through eight, about halfway through chapter eight, and it's the largest and it's the fastest pace of the movements. It covers the bulk of Jesus's ministry. And it's here in this place that we encounter Jesus week after week, these past number of weeks, constantly on the move. He's teaching with authority. He's healing. He's casting out demons. And most recently, when it feels like Mark is just crammed way too much into the text, he just shoehorns in a little bit more. We see then Jesus speaking peace to the wind and the waves. And then just this past week, we see Jesus feeding the multitudes from a, a, like a snack lunch. It's as though Jesus's authority, it's breaking the bounds of the supernatural into the natural. And what's odd is that we're surprised by that. It's as though following Jesus is is more about the natural than the supernatural, but then it's about the supernatural. It's like, who is this Jesus? And Mark's got us exactly where he wants us, attending to this question of who is Jesus? See, suffice it to say, God's power is on display through Jesus, and it is dynamic, and it is disruptive, and yet, As we track along, what we see is that there is this growing gap between the power of Jesus and the perception of Jesus, of Jesus's works and ways, and then how people want to follow Jesus. It's it's a gap between who Jesus is and how he's understood to be. And Mark Mark will not let up on this point. He won't just let us off the hook and just say, okay, I just keep going. We'll, we'll loop back to that. No, he like leans in and it's uncomfortable even. And so what I want us to see today is that Jesus is God showing up to us in a way that we can understand. And so to help us go with the grain of Mark's story and close that gap, and actually see Jesus clearly, we need to first turn to the place where Mark turned, to Job. 
And so turn with me now, if you're not already there, to the poetic wisdom of Job, chapter 9, starting in verse 4. And this is Job speaking about God in a conversation with some friends who are aiming to comfort him amidst some unexplained suffering. And this is what we read, Job chapter 9, starting in verse 4. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Other translations render that and walked on the water. Go on, verse verse 10 who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passed by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. See, this book, the book of Job, it's a story that models for us how to wrestle with God as Job himself wrestles with God amidst this unexplained suffering. And for sure, there's much more happening in Job, but at the, at the bare bones, it's a wisdom for us to see who is God? How do I relate to him amidst the challenges and pains of my life? And, and Mark is drawing upon this, but, but we're not there yet. You see, in the midst of the, the wrestling, notice, notice how Job reminds himself and, and those who are with him of God's character. Specifically, notice two things. First, notice God's orientation to the sea there in verse 8. He's the wave treader, or he's trampled the waves. And this imagery right here of, of trampling the waves, it's rooted in the ancient conception of the sea as the, the abyss, as the place of, of chaos. And we've seen Mark kind of center his writings as Jesus is up in the northern part of Israel around the Galilee. He's walking around the sea. He's crossing it to and fro back from one side to the other. There's pigs that are going out into the abyss in the sea. This is both an ancient and present moment for Jesus, even though Jesus is ancient to us. This conception of the sea is chaos. It's right here. It's the place of unrest, and yet this place of unrest, it holds no sway over God. And this isn't just an isolated moment. I mean, we see it in Mark, but it's not like this is Mark's sole inspiration. It's littered throughout the Hebrew Bible. In fact, you see it on the psalmist slips in Psalm 77. If you want, you can jump on over there just to the right a little ways. In Psalm 77, we, we read this. This is just verse 16 and 19. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. See, this place of cosmic unrest, it is stilled like glass in God's presence. And, and for Job and the psalmist, that, what that means is that we are free to be fragile because God's strength overcomes the chaos. And for some of us, before we even get to Mark, like we need to hear that afresh, that there is freedom in our fragility when we find our rest in God, the one who quiets the chaos 
That's the God who we're coming to in here. He's not far off. He's near. And when we stand with God in his authority over the chaos waters, we find comfort there. But that's not all. See, this is the second thing we need to notice, and it's in verse 11, and it's just these first few words. It's, behold, he passes by me. And let me just unpack that for a moment. For for Job, this is how God reveals God's self. This language of passing by. God is is both all-powerful. I mean, he's treading on the waves, and yet he's near. He passes by. And this, this brings us then to our second stop on our way to the gospel according to Mark in chapter 6. So turn with me now back to the left a little bit, back to the Exodus account, specifically Exodus chapter 33. And this is where we encounter Moses. He's led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God has delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. And now Moses is calling for God's nearness. And look what he says in in verse 18 here. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, this is now God speaking. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Hold, Hold on to that. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Or as it is in Hebrew, Yahweh. Let's skip down to verse 21. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, there it is again, while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by three times now. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. If this feels a bit confusing, I'm, I'm there with you. <laughs> These are a couple odd jumps to the, to the Hebrew Bible, to the Old Testament. But if this is a bit confusing, it's a, a sign that you're actually seeing the point. See, this is a mysterious business trying to think about the presence of God. And we're not the first, one that, the first ones that might be confounded by pursuing the presence of God. And what the story here does is it assures Moses, it assures Israel, the corporate people of God, and by extension, it it assures us that God's presence really does go with us. And in turn, like so too, does God's goodness, his compassion, and his grace, and, and we need not be afraid because of that. I mean, did you notice this? Did you notice how God revealed himself? Look again, just at verse 19, it says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And then you go on a little further, but what's actually seen? You jump down to the end of verse 23, but what's actually seen? It's only God's back. And as I've been reading over this time and time again, even as I like remember reading this in the past, like this is so odd. But ch- check this out. This word back, it can be kind of slippery to translate. And so some translate it hind parts which this is just hilarious to me. I mean, if if right now you were to turn to your neighbor or like text your, I I don't know, your cousin and just um, say, I I will show you my hind parts. 
Now that might land you in, in like a touch of trouble, but if you were to say like, I'll show you my hind parts, it's likely that your neighbor would go, what in the world are you talking about? To which you would then say, and this is what's funny to me, you would just say, oh, I'm just quoting the Bible. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that's enough of the hind parts, but maybe I'll try and stretch it out a little bit later. Uh, so, so here, getting back to it, other translation render that line hind parts, um, the place I just was. In other words, what Yahweh is communicating to Moses is that the closest that he will allow Moses to get is where he just was. And when you read on to the next chapter, if you just turn the page over, you actually see this in chapter 34, verse 5. You where we read this, it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. So he's followed through on his word. He's there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And it goes on listing the attributes of God. God declaring God's self to Moses. And you see, God's disclosure, it, it's not changed in that God has not stopped disclosing God's self. In his passing by, his glory is seen. And, and this is, I mean, after, after all, this is what Moses requests. But knowing that if Moses were to see the face of God, that is the presence of God, that it would be like looking without any filter, without any turning away directly into the sun. That it would consume him, it would blind him. And so God graciously allows Moses not to look upon his presence, his face, but to see where he just was, to see his hind parts. And so it's with all of this in mind, the the, the language of Job and the treading of the waters and the language of Exodus and Moses desiring God to come near, God passing by and proclaiming his name, that we turn now to Mark chapter 6 to just work through our text line by line, starting in verse 45. And before we do that, just a, a brief word of prayer to continue to remind us that it is not our effort in the text, it's not our showing up altogether, but we need God's spirit through God's word to lead us. And so let us pray here. Father, we ask that in this moment, you would help us to see that you have revealed yourself fully in Jesus, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he has come to us and that he is with us through the spirit of Christ and that the spirit cries out, Abba, Father, actually gives us the Abba cry. Helps us to know, to know fully who you are, Father, in the face of the Son. So would you, Spirit, lead us to the Son in Jesus? Would you magnify the Father as we come to the living word of God. Refine us, we pray. Amen. Amen. So picking up in verse 45, this is what we read. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, 
Well, he dismissed the crowd. And go ahead and stop right there. Uh, this is Jesus literally making his disciples leave. <laughs> and there's some umph behind that word, made. Uh, behind that word is, in some translations, rendered, uh, he constrained his disciples to the boat. Essentially, Jesus forces his disciples to leave the desolate place, the place where the crowds ascend and Jesus feeds the multitude. And if we read this passage in harmony with John's account of this passage in John chapter six, we see that at the end of that, this crowd, they had a vision of Jesus to make him king to set him as the leader of their crew, their maybe rebellion, and uh, Jesus was going to have none of that. So if, if we read this passage in Mark in harmony with John, we then see that Jesus' dismissal, it's not a punitive thing. He's not angry at the disciples, but he's potentially feeling the force of the crowds, and so he sends them away. He attends to the crowds, and then, rather than going with them, this get-out-of-dodge moment, we then read this in verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. I know we, like, we just stopped, but I, I want to stop here once more because we, we must recall when we come to the gospel um, and consider this maybe just like a little aside on reading the gospels, that Mark is writing a unified story. It's not just little snippets here that we can cut up like fortune cookie proverbs and, and take in one bite at a time. Certainly there's goodness to be had and we can behold the face of Jesus in just a line, a word. We can just think upon the name of Jesus. Yes, beautiful, amen. But Mark's intent is for us to see this as a whole. Remember, three movements, three movements here. We're just in the question of who is Jesus? And right here, we must remember, we have to call to mind that Jesus' purpose in going there was for him and his disciples to draw away to a quiet place. He said, come away with me. Let us rest. Let us draw into the Father's presence. Be recharged in that. And if Jesus' life and his rhythms are in any way supposed to be for us a model, which they are, <laughs> then then we ought not pass by this moment because flourishing, a vision of Jesus for flourishing rests right in here. You see, Jesus never loses that desire, that vision, that intent to draw away, to be with the Father. And so he goes up the mountain. He knows that God bends the heavens toward those whose resolve is to be with him. And so that's exactly what he attends to. And you think that's like just a bit Jesus-y and yeah, okay, of course, Kyle, that's Jesus. Like, that's what he does. Um, aren't you stretching that a bit far? I mean, I, I work 40 plus hours a week. Okay, let's be honest. I work 60 hours a week. Kids or, or like I, I'm visiting my family on the weekend. Uh, my roommate, they keep the space a mess. I'm constantly cleaning. Like when, when am I supposed to draw away? Let me just tell you a little story here. Hudson Taylor is a well-known British missionary in the 19th century's founder of the China Inland Mission, uh, which is this group that just so loved these people that they would take on their practices and their clothing and love them in the place that they are at. And Taylor, who founded this group, who organized themselves in such a way, had such a fierce desire to see living faith flourish in this place that he would endure brutal travel schedules just to see Jesus quicken the hearts of these women and men. 
And none of this was done on his own resolve. Like he wasn't white knuckling his way from one village to another. And his son Howard remembers it this way. This is a bit of a lengthy quote, so stay with me. It says, it was not easy for Mr. Taylor in his changeful life to make time for prayer and Bible study, but he knew that it was vital. Well do the writers remember traveling with him month after month in northern China by cart and wheelbarrow with the poorest of inns at night, often with only one large room for coolies and travelers alike, and they would screen off a corner for their father and another for themselves with curtains of some sort, and then after sleep, at last had brought a measure of quiet, they would hear a match struck and see the flicker of a candlelight, which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible in two volumes, always at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to prayer, the time when he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. That flicker of candlelight has meant more to them than all they have read or heard on secret prayer. It meant reality, not preaching, but practice. Taylor embodied the reality of waiting upon God, of pursuing his presence, waiting there, holding the line, a resolve in his heart, and it's people like Taylor that remind us that the, that the power of God and the presence of God, they go hand in hand. And the Chinlin Inn and Mission is responsible for sending over 800 missionaries who embodied the way of Jesus so that women and men might have this living faith in a living God and then partner with that God in the renewal of all things. God bends his ear. He bends the heavens toward those who have a resolve to be with him. But that was all just an aside. Let's get back to the text. Verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. That's Jesus. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. In other words, their trip, the one that Jesus had made them go on to the other side, to Bethsaida, that little fishing village, uh, it's a painful go. And this word painful, it can be translated torture. In fact, Mark translates it, it, uses that same word just a few chapters before, not even a few chapters, just a, one chapter before with the demoniac. It's on his lips. I adjure you by God, Jesus, do not torture me. <laughs> this is a violent scene. Some translations, one of your translations maybe will say that they were like going hard at the oars. They were just, they were going as hard as they could, and yet they could not make any progress. And what's interesting is that this is not the first time that disciples encounter a violent scene like this, is it? Now, they've encountered wind like this before. Now, just a few chapters prior, this group of mostly fishermen, people who'd be experienced on the sea, are freaking out because of the wind of the sea. They're like thinking they're gonna die. Meanwhile, Jesus is like asleep <laughs> in this moment. Um, and then they wake Jesus up and they're astonished that he speaks peace to the wind just a moment later. And I don't know if you can 
remember like watching movies with friends um, because quarantine we're, we've been distanced for a while now, but maybe some of you have been doing this digitally or something. Uh, but inevitably there's a friend who like, yells at the TV as though somehow their shouts will break through space and time and storylines and like move the characters to action, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Uh, un unfortunately, I'm, I'm often that, so uh, if you want a more exciting dialogue or some commentary, watch shows with me. Uh, but it doesn't stop at a screen. Like, I'm doing this in the gospel according to Mark. I find myself saying to the disciples, like, tell the wind to shut up. Jesus rebuked you. He was astonished at your unfaith. Like, come on, guys. What are you doing? The irony of the moment is that when my shouts die down in my mind, or sometimes when they die down in the living room, um, I, I realize that I'm in the boat. I'm in the same boat. Like how often I strain at the oars, how often I make painful headway, neglecting that the authority of Jesus is with me. I don't know if that resonates with you. But praise God that when we can't or won't perceive Jesus, that when we won't recognize that he's given his authority to us, that Jesus still sees the needs of his followers. And we actually see that in verse 48. And so we go on. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So this is at the crest of day. The, the daylight will be coming up so Jesus can be visible. And he meant to pass by them. And right now, Job and Psalm 77 and Exodus, they should just be flashing in front of you right now. All the lights in your proverbial dash are going off. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought, it's a ghost. And they cried out for they, were, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, after a whole night raging against the wind, Jesus, he comes across the water, and they think Jesus is a phantom, a ghost. And to be fair, like they're not hallucinating or anything like that. This is the chaos waters. If there's ever going to be a ghost, this is where you're going to find it in their cultural imagination. It makes sense. But notice what Mark's doing here. As he recounts this moment, man, it's just dripping with that imagery from the Hebrew Bible, the, the, the imagery that we went through. And so where is Jesus in light of all of that? Mark's put Jesus in the God slot. <laughs> He, he's doing the things that only God is supposed to do. He's treading the waves. He's set to pass by. Remember, that is the self-disclosing act of God. It, it's the way that Job describes how God would reveal God's self. It's, it's what Moses asks for, for God to show him his glory. But the disciples, man, they don't, recognize the moment for what it is. They, they don't recognize that in Jesus, God has shown up in a way that they can understand him. And why? Well, look again at the end of verse 52. 
for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. And this is, this is in like inciting line. Like this, this line, man, it, it, it does something to the disciples. That's almost unexpected. Uh, biblical scholars will call this Mark's polemic. It's like him moving against the disciples. It's indicting. And the only other people in the story so far who have hard hearts towards Jesus and his ministry are the Pharisees. And if you recall, the Pharisees are the religious elite of the day. They're the ones who oppose Jesus for forgiving sins because that's only reserved for God. They're the ones whose hearts are, Jesus says, their hearts are hardened. He's angry at them when he heals a man on the Sabbath. But that's only the first layer of indictment. The the second layer, and potentially the the heavier one, is this implicit link to Pharaoh. And you may have begun to, to notice a theme here, that as Mark tells this story, he's telling it with the Hebrew Bible both as the backdrop and as the framework for how Jesus is coming here. Because Jesus is God moving toward us in a way that we can understand him. And here, when we see like, that the disciples are called this crazy thing, this, that their hearts are hard, like in this moment, they're Pharaoh. They're the one who's enslaved God's people back in Egypt in the first place. I mean, Pharaoh is the figurehead of oppression throughout Israel's history. He's the one who has the hard heart. And this is where Mark slots the disciples, partnered up with the oppressor. The gap widens. And to be clear, this this story here in Mark 6, this is a story about the godness of Jesus, but it's also a story about you and me, and we'll get to that in a moment. This is a story about the godness of Jesus, that in Jesus, God showed up in a way that we can understand him. And he's done this all along, that God is a God who discloses himself. He doesn't stay far off, but he comes near. And yet he knows. He knows that his presence is such that that it can and will consume you. So what does he do? He takes on our form. We don't just see his hind parts. Jesus is God's self-disclosure in the flesh, like the front and the back. We see the image of the invisible God in the face of Jesus of Nazareth. And to make it abundantly clear who he is, He does things like feeding the multitudes. He treads on the waves. He tramples them. Or as Mark would say here, he walks on water. And yet this, this is the sticking point. The clarity of Jesus is the confusion of the disciples. The clarity of Jesus is the sticking point. It's the hardening point for the disciples. Just to... This passage is so frustrating when all you want is for Jesus to like tie a nice little bow around a theological point so that we can follow him in this cultural moment. But Jesus isn't here to relieve the tension. That won't happen when Jesus is the tension. And so the gap is widening and Jesus does not waver. 
like, like Job, Mark is telling a story for us to see ourselves into. And the sobering reality is that when we slow down long enough to do so, like when we track with Mark, we move with the grain rather than against the grain of the text, we quickly realize our shouts to the disciples are indicting against us, that we are the disciples, that we're stuck and we don't even know it. And and for many of us, we've been following Jesus for years now. And we're just like, we're raging. We're torturing ourselves against the wind. We're finding that we're so far off course. And so we, We come to passages like this and we hear about the power of Jesus and it's uncomfortable and we feel more exposed than comforted and we feel the gap in our own hearts because like we see the power of Jesus and and yet our perception of Jesus is just, it does not map up and we hear that they go hand in hand and we're like, what's going on? This is so frustrating. And I, I could be wrong here. I submit that. I could be so wrong in this next assessment. But in all of this, I think that we want Jesus' power without the presence of Jesus. I think that we want the healings and we want the peace and we want the power, but we don't want the compassion that brings the peace. And, and we don't want the enemy love that will bring the healing. We don't want the patience or the forbearance because that would mean that we actually are insulted. That would mean that we're actually offended, but we respond without offense in return. So we want the kingdom without the king. And John Piper, he he says it this way. He actually uh, posits a question for us, a question that I want us to consider right now. He says, the critical question for our generation, really for all generations, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? You see, how we respond to a question like this, it reveals where we might be stuck. And, and maybe your reflex is to say, well, of course not. I, no, I, I, want, I want Jesus, but allow those categories. Just allow that question to search you. Ask the Spirit of God right now to search your heart. Because a question like this, it can, it can show us, it can tell us where we're stuck where our hearts are hard, if we're willing to listen to the response. And and, and check this, being opposed to the way of Jesus, it's not outright denial or rejection of Jesus. It's not like like becoming a Satanist or like just declaring that you're either agnostic, oh, I just don't really know, not enough information, or I'm an atheist, no gods, no systems of religion, or just being a humanist. It's all about pleasure or any other religious form in our secular age. It's not just outright rejection or denial. It's also ranking comfort and convenience over compassion. It's choosing the wide way when the narrow way presents internal or maybe interpersonal conflict. It's not just outright rejection. 
It's more nuanced than that. And this is why, this is why we are sitting ourselves in the gospel according to Mark. Because if we don't have a vision for Jesus, the one who withdraws to be with the Father, who has a resolve to do so, the one who's willing to pass by, to, to like live into the self-disclosing work of God, like if we don't have a vision for this Jesus, the one who the apostle Paul calls the image of the invisible God, then when he shows up, perhaps we'll be the ones to call him a ghost, an, an aberration, something that we just made up, maybe just a nice moral teacher from way back then. See, we need a, like a vision for Jesus that actually reflects who Jesus is. This is a moment where the gap does not have to widen because the power of Jesus and our perception of Jesus through the spirit of Jesus, they can be mended. It can, they can come closer, but it might, take, it might take us getting unstuck to deal with our stuckness, if you will. See, Jesus is coming. He is faithful. So let us not be astonished by his power. Let us be aware that Jesus is the all-powerful one, the truly human one, the one who brings to completion the story of Israel, the one in whom we see the full human, the last Adam come, and the one who gives himself away in love for his enemy. Jesus is all of that, and he's inviting us into that. If we're willing to die to our vision for his life, if we're willing to die to the convenience and comforts that this world offers us. I understand this is not a comfortable moment to end, right? Like this is, this is a frustrating moment. But Jesus is set to disclose himself to his disciples and they see an aberration. They see a ghost, a phantom. When what's in front of them is the God of the cosmos who they can actually understand. We too have this moment in front of us to close the gap between the reality of Jesus and what we think about Jesus. Th those two things can actually be one when the spirit of Jesus begins to transform our minds. For some of us, and we, we find ourselves in this moment exposed we ask the Spirit of God to search our hearts and some things are coming up. There's a, like your, your conscience is moving toward one way or another. Like you've been, just been asking Jesus to be like your personal secretary, attending to your tasks to keep you safe and to keep you fed. And, and certainly Jesus cares about our, our basic physical needs. But he's after whole person restoration. He wants to see you flourish and then to invite others into flourishing. He wants to see your heart alive to the things of God and dead to the things of death. Because this is Jesus. Jesus actually took our death. He took death into himself so that we could be alive to God. So will we see this Jesus? Or will we just see a Jesus who gets us our comforts? Will we just be people who want the kingdom without the king? I hope that that question is searing your conscience as it is my own. Because without the king, there is no kingdom at all.
So let us seek his face, church, with all that we have. Let us seek his kingdom because he is there. And where he is, we want to be there. We don't want to miss him. Let us pray. Jesus, we ask two things. Show us where you are and lead us gently. Show us where you are and lead us gently by the power of your spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.